You don't have to be much of a baseball fan or much of a sports fan to know that the Phils did pretty well this year and that they, they had a great season. They fell one series short of the World Series this year, and uh, they made it to the National League pennant series. And uh, when they got there, they found themselves uh, rudely awakened by the San Francisco Giants. And uh, the San Francisco Giants have a guy on their team named Pat Burrell. Pat Burrell is, uh, used to play for the Phils when we won the World Series, and he bats for the San Francisco Giants, and he just got himself another ring. But during the series that we played with San Francisco and the Phils played with San Francisco, Roy Halladay is a guy we've acquired since we won the World Series. He's a, you know, our star pitcher uh, among three, but he's our greatest pitcher. And he and Pat Burrell got into it a little bit during the series. Roy Halladay apparently struck out Pat Burrell, and then after he struck him out, he proceeded to say something to his catcher or one of the guys on his team, which Pat Burrell interpreted as Roy Halladay making fun of him and mocking him over the fact that he had just struck him out. So he got all angry, and there were some words exchanged. Next time Pat Burrell comes up to bat, this is what the commentator says. commentator says, there's no greater moment for a major league batter than this moment right here. After there's been banter between the pitcher and him, and now the pitcher's going to start throwing across this plate, and he has a chance to put it out of the park on this guy who's been jawjacking to him. And so there's no greater moment for a major league baseball player or baseball batter than the opportunity to put it out on the fence after a guy's been talking like that. And I just started laughing when, when the commentator said it. I was like, man, is that a really human desire, isn't it? Right there. I mean, the testosterone is pumping, the competition is swirling around, and this guy bested him last time and had the audacity to say something, or at least he thought he did, and so now he's going he's gonna to reassert himself and, and, and make sure that he's in the position of power, and so he wants desperately to get a hit in this moment, because what does he actually want? He wants revenge. Revenge. That's what he wants. He wants revenge. Yeah, you know, revenge is a pretty amazing thing. Revenge sells tickets. Uh, it sells tickets to all sorts of things, sometimes to baseball games, definitely to football games like the Eagles versus the Cowboys or something. You know, it, it sells lots of tickets to movies. There's movies that come out, you know, like, like picture this, a, a Western movie that, that uh, you know, masquerades under the motif of justice but actually plays on the human desire for revenge, some a guy moves out from the east out to the west to gain his fortune and he uh, gets out there and some nasty wranglers figure out how to take his money from him and hurt his family so he grabs a sheriff's badge and there's going to be justice in this land. And he puts on the sheriff's badge and, and goes to make sure there's justice in the land but actually what happens is, is the movie pulls on our desire for revenge and he goes and shoots up all the bad guys who did him harm, and now he can legally do them harm back. It's amazing how well revenge sells tickets because there's a desire inside of us. There's a human desire deep-seated within us that when someone has bested us and when someone has hurt us, that we want to get them back. So much so, so much so that we call revenge sweet. Sweet revenge. Why do we call it sweet revenge? Well, I think probably because revenge doesn't start with doing something to someone. It starts with someone doing something to us. And we experience pain. And that pain leaves a kind of taste in our mouth. What kind of taste? 
a bitter taste, and we grow bitter, and we need something sweet to get that nasty, bitter taste out of our mouth. And so the lie that we choose to believe, the reason that goes on in our minds is that this bitter taste that's in our mouth from this wrong that was done to us will be satisfied and will be taken away by the sweetness of making this person pay just a little bit, and that sweetness that comes into our mouth will remove the bitterness that they left in our mouth, and somehow it'll all balance out, and so we believe leave the lie. (laughs) Revenge. Revenge doesn't just sell tickets to movies and it doesn't just sell tickets to games. Revenge is a real thing in real life, isn't it? Because pain is a real thing in our hearts. And we get hurt a lot more than just our pride's hurt in a baseball game. We find ourselves in deep, deep pain at times. I want you to think with me in, in your own personal life for a second. Where are the places where you've been really hurt? I mean deeply wounded. You know that, that spouse who you thought you guys had committed to one another, but they were unfaithful? Or maybe that parent who was tasked with the responsibility of providing for you and taking care of you, but either neglected you or, or abused you, maybe physically or emotionally? An authority figure who took advantage of you? Maybe it was a friend who just completely betrayed you. You've been marginalized, ostracized, because you didn't look right, didn't talk right, didn't have the right friends, didn't drive the right kind of car. You know the moments I'm talking about. Where is the moment in your life where you've been deeply hurt and deeply wounded? The pain comes in all sorts of shapes, and it comes in all sorts of sizes, But we don't have to debate today whether or not pain happens in our lives. It's inevitable. Pain has happened, and it will continue to happen. The critical question for us today is how do we respond to our pain? What happens coming away from that pain in our own lives? What do we do with that pain? People's lives are forever altered because of the pain that they experience. And it's not just because of the pain, it's because of how they choose to respond to that pain that alters their life. A life that initially was intentional and was driven and was going after something can all of a sudden be on a constant rebound. And lives can begin to become reactionary instead of intentional. And instead of someone pursuing something and going after something in their life, they're reacting to things in their life. Because instead of going after something that God has called them to, now they're reacting to the hurt in their life that they don't want to experience again. It may be that they put their heart out there, and the person who they gave their heart to was in a position of power because they held their heart, and they wounded them and hurt them. And so now their life has become more calcified. Their heart is harder They've put walls up. Fear, resentment, and bitterness have begun to take over and to take some root. It may be that an authority figure has hurt the person. And now, instead of living intentionally, they find out how to build walls in their life, not trust anymore. To not go after things the way they used to. Pain has a way of changing us by how we respond. But our reaction to pain has more than just shaping the direction of our physical lives. How we react to pain has massive effect on our spiritual lives and on the whole spiritual realm that we find ourselves in. Those of us who have read the scriptures 
And those of us who have known Christ know deeply that all around us, right here in this room, there is not just the physical realm that we can see, but there's something deeper. That there's not just physical beings in this room, but there's spiritual beings in this room. That Byron here is not just a physical man. That God has created him with a spirit. And that all across this room there are spirits. But it's not just the spirits of those we see sitting in the pews. There are also angelic beings and demonic beings who wage war. We're told that this realm that we can't see, it's not a realm of peace. Right now, it is a realm of all-out brutal war. And the battlefield is our souls. The battlefields are the human spirits. And every time that we have to make a decision, it bears huge weight on this spiritual world. The reason being is because there's two armies that fight. One is the army of God, fighting for the kingdom of light. And the objective of this kingdom is to bring all into harmony with one another and with their God. And the mode of warfare that God brings is by laying the truth out plainly for us to see, to believe. And when we believe it, the truth can set us free. If we will hold on to the truth, we can live in harmony with one another and in harmony with God. The ultimate objective of this army, of this kingdom, is to bring unity. But there's another army. And it's led by a general who is a ruthless serial killer, who's a dictator, who puts Hitler and Jeffrey Dahmer to shame when it comes to evil. He's manipulative, and his primary tool is deception. He has no real power of his own, but he's a master of shadows and of lies. And he turns people against each other and against their God because the primary objective of his army is disunity. The primary objective of his army is to get people to turn against their God and against each other because since he has no power of his own, the way he gains his power is by manipulating people and pushing them against one another. Satan. He uses all sorts of tools through that deception. He offers pride. He offers fear. He offers bitterness and resentment. And in a moment of pain, we are given an opportunity to make a decision. Like few other moments in our lives, in the moment of pain, we are afforded an opportunity to make decisions that change our spirits. Because the pain doesn't just touch our minds. It doesn't just touch our bodies. The pain cuts us deep to the heart of us, to the spirit. And how we react in the spirit realm and what we believe in the spirit realm in that moment will determine so many things. But it will determine, first of all, which army we will war for. And it will determine, secondly, how well we will war. Will we be people who will work toward unity by holding on to the truth in this moment of pain? Or will we, will, will we be people who will be led astray and take a hold of a lie? And will it lead us to bitterness and resentment and in its most acute form, the weapon of revenge. But the enemy is not the only one who wields weapons. We are told that we are given weapons. That God has weapons. And one of his most profound weapons in this spiritual warfare is a weapon that can, in the middle of pain, 
find a way to redeem the pain and bring unity that can allow light to shine brilliantly right in the midst of darkness. And that every deception and every shadow and every trap that the enemy brings in this moment of decision, when there's war over our souls, God offers us one profound weapon. And it's called forgiveness. It's an amazing tool from God. Pray with me. God, we love you. And we wish that we loved you more. We wish that we loved you the way you love us. But we don't. Let's just be honest about it. And because of that, we find ourselves in a place where there is war. We find ourselves in a place where there is battle waging all around us. (laughs) And we desperately need every tool that you will give us in order to grease the wheel that is rusted by sin, in order to lay out the truth that is so blinded by the deceptions of the enemy. And today, through the person of Joseph, you reveal to us forgiveness. Help us to see it, to know it, to understand it, and to walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen. So have you ever had the desire inside of you for revenge? Of course you have. Yeah, ever have that moment when you walk away from a conversation where, you know, the person said something that was like, got at you a little bit, and then like five minutes later, you're replaying the conversation in your mind, and you think of something that would have been good to say, and man, I wish I had thought of that five minutes ago. Well, thank God you didn't, you know, but like, you kind of wish, you know, that you had, maybe in that deep moment of pain that we thought about a little bit ago. Have you ever thought what it would be like to return to that place of pain, except now you're the one in the position of power? You hold their heart in your hands. They're not the one with the checkbook. You are. They're not the one with the gun. You are. They're not the one in the position of power. You are. They're not the one who's more physically strong. You are. Have you ever thought about that? I have. There's been moments when the deep pain of my life where I've replayed the situation and pretended that I'm now in a position of power and I can return to this person who did this to me and now I'm in a position of power. That's a fun fantasy for a second. Think about Joseph. Here he is. Who has more reason? Who has more of a reason for resentment and bitterness and baggage than this guy? When you get into trouble, who's supposed to get your back? Your brothers, sisters. His brothers, they hated him. They hated him with everything inside of them. They beat him up. They mocked him. They kicked him around. They threw him into a pit. They sold him to slavery. You'd think that at some point they'd grow a conscience in the middle of it and at least relent a little bit, but they don't. They're like past the point of no return and they throttle him over and over again until he's in a foreign land with no one else around and they lie to dad and make it look like he's dead. And then, after all of that, he has years to sit around and do nothing at all but think about it. <laughs> Just sit there and think about how his life has been messed with because of his brothers. 
And so you can just imagine all those years in the prison, all those years scrubbing floors alone in Potiphar's house, and all he can think about is, man, I had this dream. God had plans for my life. I had all this stuff going on, and my brothers went and did this and this and this, and here I am, rejected and alone. And you can imagine, no one has more reason for resentment, bitterness, and pain than this man of Joseph. Honestly, in the history of humanity, I'm having a hard time thinking of a guy who has a better setup for resentment. (laughs) Really. And here he is in the foreign land, and now what's happened to him? Josh told us last week, he's grown into a position of massive power. He's the second most powerful man in the world. And guess who comes back into his life? After all these years. Genesis chapter 42. Stand with me as we read, please. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, I love this line, Why, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued. I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us, so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Here's a guy who's being defined by his past, isn't he? By his past pain. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain. For the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Oh, what a perfect, perfect setup. This is Hollywood in the making right here. Verse 9. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. You realize who they just said they were honest to? No, he said to them. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Have a seat. One is no more. Are you kidding me? These guys have no idea. One is no more? I'm standing right here looking you eye to eye and you're telling me one is no more? If I had let this thing go and if there had been a scab that had formed, you just ripped that scab right off, buddy. It's on, you know? And here is the moment. Can you think of a more perfect, perfect moment for retribution, for retaliation, for sweet revenge than for this moment? It is perfect. It is absolutely perfect. And so here is Joseph, and he's poised to pounce. You know what Frank Sinatra says about revenge? 
He says the greatest revenge is massive success. That's what he says the greatest revenge is. Someone kicks you around, rise above them. Rise up. Get above them and then get aloof and get arrogant and make them feel dumb. Perfect revenge. Think of a person poised better for that than little bitty brother Joseph who's now the second most powerful man in the world. And these guys are hungry and need food. And I'm the only one who's got it. Perfect opportunity for revenge. The stage is set. It's all good. It's ready to go. Here it is. It's Joseph and his brothers, and it's the big showdown. Everyone's ready for the wonderful scene to see the payback that's been coming for a long time. Joseph doesn't reveal himself. He makes us wait for the climax. He makes us wait for the moment. He doesn't just spill the beans and say, I'm Joseph. And he doesn't just pound them and send them to their death and send them packing. He kind of plays with them. We don't really know what he's doing, but this is what he does. He says to his brothers, huh, I'll tell you what. You're hungry? You tell me that there is 12 sons. One of them is no more. There's only 10 of you here. And you say there's one other one. In the back of Joseph's mind, man, he's got a brother who he never met. He says, I'll tell you what. You guys can have grain. Go back home. I'm going to keep one of you here in prison. And he grabs Simeon. And he puts Simeon in prison. Sends the rest of them home. And he says, when you're hungry again and you need more food, you come back. But the only way you're getting more food is if you bring that other brother with you so I know you're not lying. When they get home, they cut open their bags of grain. The money that they paid for the grain with spills out along with the grain because Joseph had tucked the money back in the bags. They start getting a little worried at this point. Not that they hadn't already been worried, but now they're like, great, we're going to look like thieves. Eventually, they run out of food. As tends to happen in the middle of famines. They ran out of food, and it's time for them to head back. Jacob is still being defined by his past pain, and when they say, we've got to take Benjamin with us, he's not hearing any of it at all. He won't let this guy out of his sight. Now Judah, you remember Judah? You remember him in this story? You remember back when Reuben was trying, he was the oldest brother who was trying to save, save Joseph from getting killed. And there's one guy who said, what will we gain from killing our brother? <laughs> we'll gain more if we sell him to slavery. And there was a brother who decides to sell his life to slavery in Egypt. You remember who that was? It was Judah. So Judah now, a lot's changed in Judah's life. There was a chapter that we skipped over in the story of Joseph that talks all about Judah, and what God did in his life. You can go back and read that at some point if you'd like. I'd encourage you to. Judah says to his dad, he says, Look, Dad, you're trying to save Benjamin's life, but we're all going to die here if we don't eat. So I'll tell you what. I swear on my own life that I'm going to bring this guy back alive. And if he doesn't come back with us alive, you can disown me as your son. His dad says, All right, you better bring him back alive. So they take off, they go back to Egypt, they get to Egypt, Joseph sees 
his only full brother. The rest of the guys are all half-brothers. This is his only full brother. He's never seen him before. But he still hides his emotions, still hides who he is. He has to a few times run out into the back room to shed a few tears because the pain is still there. Ultimately, he gives them more grain and he sends them back. And when he sends them back, he has one of his guards plant a silver cup, his own silver cup, in Benjamin's bag. And as soon as he gets outside of Egypt, he sends his guards after him. And he says, go find the cup. And they cut open the bags and out falls the silver cup. The brothers are swearing, we didn't steal anything. And out drops the cup from Benjamin's bag. Joseph knows exactly what he's doing. They come back. And now there's an opportunity. See, Joseph, he's not just been playing games. He's been setting this whole thing up. The whole time he's been masterminding something. And he's been setting up this moment, this powerful moment where we will see what he is made of. And so will they. When they come back, Benjamin, the one who the father loved deeply at this point and protected deeply, who he favored again, The cup is here and Joseph says, okay, the rest of you are free to go. This boy is staying with me. Judah, the one who sold out Joseph, the one who had treated him so horribly, the leader among the brothers, he throws himself at his brother who he doesn't know is his brother. And he begs and pleads and he explains the entire situation. And he says, look, I'm telling you, you have no idea how big of a deal this is. My father's heart was shattered when he heard what had happened to our brother who is no more. And if I come back now without this one, I'm done and my father is done. Please, I beg you, take me and put me in prison instead of this guy. Imagine the emotions going through Joseph at this point. Oh, that his brother had stood up for him the way he's standing up for Benjamin. Oh, that they hadn't just told him again just how much pain his father had been in when he found out that he was dead. And yet there's probably also somewhere inside of Joseph something that sees the positive change that's been taking place in Judah but could possibly make his heart turn even more because he's missed the transformation and he's missed all these years with his father, with his little brother Benjamin who he never knew, the transformation of his brother Judah. His heart is all over the place. His emotions overwhelm him. And in chapter 45, Joseph finally cracks beginning of chapter 45, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Would you be terrified? I'd be terrified. 
He doesn't say yet what he's going to do with them. His emotions overwhelm him as far as the massive success and playing it aloof and uncaring anymore. He kind of blew that one when he fell apart emotionally. Now, if there's one recourse left, if there's one piece of revenge left, it's just to be brutal. And they are absolutely terrified. What will Joseph do in this huge moment as they all quake in their boots? Verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five there will be no There will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you and your children and your grandchildren and your flocks and your herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father all about the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. And he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and he wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. Joseph. Joseph, man, you had the perfect setup. The Hollywood producers were knocking down your door. Here it is. Every person across the course of history has longed for this moment to take this sweet revenge, and you completely blew it. And instead, you tell a story of Jesus. Way to go, Joseph. He weeps over his brothers. He tells them, don't be angry with yourselves. What's amazing to me about this forgiveness, it's so profound. It's, it's so powerful. It's so deep. How in the world does he do it? How in the world can he possibly forgive them on this level? Ultimately, this moment for Joseph, it's not a question about forgiveness versus revenge. It really wasn't. It was never a question about forgiveness versus revenge. It was a question about control versus faith. That's what it was about. Whether he was in control of his life, his brothers were in control of his life, 
or whether God was in control of his life. See, the pain came, and the spiritual battle waged all around him, and Satan was vying for his soul. And God laid the truth out plainly before him. The lie that Satan wanted Joseph to believe is that his brothers had taken control of his life. And in the moment when he had his life planned out and he thought things were going to go well, they took control and they stole his life from him. And the enemy whispers into his ears, your brother stole your life from you. Take control of it back right now. And the enemy whispers into his ear. But over the years, God has spoken plainly to him. And he speaks very plainly to him when his brothers show up. Back in that verse in chapter 42 where we read together. In verse 9 of 42, it says this. When they fell down before him, he recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize them. And then he remembered his dreams about them. Cell phone moment. <laughs> Sorry, it happens to the best of us. See you, Mom. <laughs> moment of comic relief. The jester exits the stage. <laughs> Where was I? These, these dreams. He remembers these dreams. You know, until now, the dreams have been the source of all the problems. Right? His brothers hate him because of the dreams. His life is turned upside down because of the dreams. Everything about these dreams has been nothing but a curse. So much so that last week, when Josh talked about the dreams, he said that Joseph named his son Manasseh, which means I forget. I forget my past. I forget my home. I forget the dreams. I forget it all. I don't care anymore. I let it go. And now when his brothers show up, God brings the dream back to his mind. As soon as he sees him, there's the dream. And all of a sudden, we realize why God gave him these dreams. God didn't give him these dreams so that he could get arrogant with his brothers. He didn't give him these dreams so he could get, you know, some self-esteem about the fact that his brothers would bow down to him. He didn't give him these dreams so that his brothers would hate him and send him off, although all of that would happen. He didn't give him the dreams so that a famine would happen and so that Joseph would be in Egypt when a famine happened, although that would happen. He gave him the dreams so that when all of this stuff did happen and his brothers came back, that in this moment, Joseph would begin to realize and it would cement the truth in his mind that yes, he knew he wasn't in control of his life, but neither were his brothers. This whole time, there has been one person who's been in charge of his life and it's been his God. And in this moment, when he remembers the dream, he has to come to terms with the fact that my brothers didn't take away my life from me. God gave me this life. And it has been a blessing. If he wants to hate his brothers, and if he wants to retaliate in this moment, there's only one reason why. And it's because he wants to try to maintain control of his life. He wants to maintain the right to hurt them because they hurt him. 
And if, in fact, he does decide to take control of his life back again and to choose to hate them, then he will allow them again to have control of his life. Because what they did in the past, he will still be reacting to. And instead of living his life intentionally based on what God wants for him, he will lose control of his life and will forfeit it and hand it back over to them and ultimately to Satan, who will again get him to believe lies and will send his brothers this way and him this way. And Satan will reign in the chaos of the spiritual decision that Joseph makes to try to maintain control of his life by taking and choosing bitterness and retaliation. But in Instead, he chooses faith and believes that God is in charge of his life. And because of it, he will follow God in this moment. And the truth is that God has blessed him so that he can be a blessing to his brothers. And it doesn't matter what they've done in the past. He doesn't depend on his brothers. He depends on the living God. He doesn't respond to his brothers. He doesn't react to his brothers. He obeys the living God. His brothers weren't there for him in the pit. His God was. Who will he respond to, his brothers or God? Who has hurt us in our lives? Will we choose to allow them to have the say in our lives? They're the ones who abused us. They don't deserve the say in our lives. When they hurt us in the moment of pain, who is there with us? God. So now, how will we live our lives in response to them because of the pain they've caused? Or in loyalty to God, who has been loyal to us through our pain? We live for God. We fight for the army of the Lord. What's amazing, I love it. The story's not over. Joseph sends them back on their way to get Dad and to bring him back. And as he sends them on their way, listen to what he says. Verse 24 of chapter 45. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they were leaving, he said to them, don't quarrel on the way. (laughs) I love it. This man has so much deep insight into not just interpersonal social relationships, but deep insight into the spiritual realm. Because what he understands is the enemy never lets up. And if he couldn't get a hold of Joseph and disunify him with his brothers, then he's sure going to try on the way home to get them to be disunified with one another. And he foresees what's going to happen. And he says, look, after all that has happened, I've forgiven you. And the reason I've forgiven you is so that we won't be in disunity, but that God will remain among us and keep us unified. Please, whatever you do, on the way home, don't start to point the finger. Reuben's going to point at Judah and say, I told you, you shouldn't have done this, dude. And they're going to be back and forth at each other's throat. And Joseph says, just don't quarrel on the way. Just don't quarrel on the way. So they go home and they get dad and they bring him back and Pharaoh throws a big party and Joseph is able to take care of him and everything goes wonderfully and then eventually Jacob passes away and all the stuff leading up to Jacob passing away is really important and we're going to cover that next week. But after Jacob passes away, there's one last moment with his brothers. He passes away and his brothers get scared because they think that maybe this whole time Joseph has been waiting for one more moment, waiting till after dad dies to actually exact his revenge. It's amazing how messed up we get in our spirits when we've sinned. We can't think clearly anymore. We can't trust people anymore because we've learned that we can't trust ourselves. 
And so they still suspect Joseph. And here it is. Chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, and that should say lying, your father left these instructions before he died. Lie. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of God your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Why did he weep? Because after all of this forgiveness, and after all of these years, he realizes that his brothers are still in bondage. That his brothers are still in chains that this whole time they still haven't really trusted Him. They haven't dealt with what's inside yet. And so they still suspect Him. He had hoped for unity and they still are lying and using their father's name as a ploy against Him or whatever. But listen to Joseph. Here is the climax of the story of Joseph. Verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. How about it? Little brother speaks kindly and reassures all the big brothers. They threw him into a pit years ago, but they need the soothing words of their little brother now who's in a position of massive power because they still don't know what to do with their own sin. And they can't quite hold on and believe just how much they've been forgiven. Sound familiar? And Joseph gives us a picture again of someone who is coming. Of one who will come and who will assure all of his brothers and sisters that they have been forgiven. And Joseph tells a story that is only the prologue to a greater story that we will read. When he hangs on the brutal cross, and when the brothers and sisters beat him and nail him to the cross, and he hangs there and says the infamous words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And in the critical moment, we find the weapon that is used by Joseph and the weapon that is used by Jesus and the weapon that is used by the first martyr, Stephen, when he mimics Jesus. Father, forgive them. And a few years ago, you remember that out in Lancaster County, we heard of a place called Nickel Mines. And we heard of a place where some man who is still being defined by the pain in his past locks himself in a room and mows down a bunch of innocent children. And after the pain that the families experience because of their loss, the elders among that community get up and they say, we forgive the killer. And in the moment when they have a funeral for this killer, half of the funeral is Amish. And when they don't have food to eat, and when they are financially in trouble, 
the Amish start a fund to provide for his family. Because they believe one truth. That the glory of Christianity is to conquer this world with forgiveness. With forgiveness. Every day, all day, the war wages. And there is one tool that will win the war. And it is the tool of forgiveness. Will you choose it today? If you don't, your life is slave to all of those who hurt you. But if you choose forgiveness, you are a warrior in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we desperately, desperately need your forgiveness. We understand that old quote that if we cannot forgive, we break the bridge upon which we must cross because we are in desperate need of forgiveness because we have offended you on the highest levels. We've been unfaithful to you in the critical moment and we need your blood on a cross and it pains us to see your pain and yet we desperately need it and we have a hard time like Joseph's brothers believing that we're actually forgiven. But you tell us over and over again and you reassure us. But the enemy speaks the lies that we are not forgiven and we need to take control of our own lives. Oh God, protect us. Protect in our minds the truth. Help us to believe and take faith instead of control. To know that you are in control and that you love us. Oh God, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In Jesus' name, amen.